Hello and welcome to the sixth Labour Leave podcast. My name is David Price and in the studio with me here today uh, we have the Right Honourable Gisela Stewart. Hello Gisela. Hello David. And we have uh, David Goodhart. Hello David. Hello. Gisela, perhaps you'd like to tell us uh, what you do and why you're interested in Brexit. I now chair an organisation called Change Britain which was set up after the referendum uh, with the aim of getting the best deal possible uh, to implement the referendum result. Before that, uh, I was the chair of the official Vote Leave campaign, 20 years as a Labour MP, but probably more significantly, I'm one of the very few people who, back in the early 2000s, uh, was one of the key negotiators for the what emerged as a European constitution. So. I have spent 50 months negotiating across 27 and Whitehall, including a certain Michel Barnier. I'm not sure what happened to him. Oh, I don't, don't know. No idea. So, and David, how about you? Um, I am a journalist and um, think tanker. I work uh, currently at the Policy Exchange Think Tank. Um, I've um, written books about immigration and most recently a book called The Road to Somewhere, which is about... Um, Poppy's about the Brexit vote and Trump and so on, um, and is looking at how how these things have emerged out of the new value divisions in our society, the divide I describe between the people from anywhere and the people from somewhere, and how that sort of cut across sort of the, the older um, political cleavages. Great. And um, we're going to uh, continue where we left off from the last podcast here. Um, Talking about the changes in society and the changes in, in how the different uh, uh, groups of people in Britain uh, have voted and are voting and how that intersects with the, with the, with the Brexit issue. Um, my first question is to Giesler, and um, I'd like you to tell me how large do you think is the cultural divide between Labour's traditional working class voters and uh, the group of people that David Goodhart refers to as anywheres, if you like, the metropolitan, I hate, to, I hate to use this phrase, it's so overused, but the metropolitan liberal elite, in, in inverted commas. Is that a real problem for the, for the Labour Party? And indeed, um, how does that cross over with the parliamentary Labour Party? I, I think there is a significant division. And it kind of started... Uh, almost with the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, when uh, uh, the political parties uh, gathering around value bases uh, sort of waned and, you know, new Labour, and to this day I will proudly describe myself as a Blairite, uh, became very managerial. We just did things better and more efficient and more effective. And that's actually a very, a very European Union uh, way of doing things, because if you go back to the 1957 creation of the Treaty of Rome, the founding fathers felt that uh, ideology and nationalism lead to wars. And if you wanted to have a democratic system, that if you, as long as you could, pro could promise a better tomorrow, an economically more prosperous system, uh, then bureaucracy could replace uh, ideology. And we sort of, in that sense, in the Labour Party, moved on that as well. And you saw that curious flipping from, you know, the, the Tony Blair, when he first stood for election, 
under Michael Foote as leader of the Labour Party, actually fought a campaign on the promise to leave the common market as it was then. And then, of course, you ended up Jacques Delors being a very socialist president of the Commission, Margaret Thatcher undermining, as we saw, workers' rights. So suddenly the Labour Party switched and thought it was Europe which would give us the kind of rights the national government didn't give us. But then, ever since mastery, both sides didn't think about these things anymore. The, 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 the arguments fossilized to good or bad. And at that same time, industrialization, uh, movement of labor, uh, the labor heartlands in the north and the nor uh, northeast and northwest, manufacturing base being eroded. So all these things were coming together. And that's the big challenge for the Labour Party that on the current trajectory, it will become a middle class public sector uh, urban party. And that rather leaves large swathes of the country unrepresented. Yes, I think that's right. Um, we were talking earlier about the division between the sort of socio-economic politics and socio-cultural, and, and um, the, these new divisions are reflected in the party system. Um, um, but they cut both of the big parties down the middle. Um, and um, I think do you know where you know we kind of. We're, we're almost trying to have a have a sort of party realignment, um, but it, it's it, it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, you, I mean, I suspect the new parties will emerge. Uh, I suspect the Labour Party will end up being, as Giesler says, the, the party of the liberal middle class in some ways. I mean, it's already hemorrhaged um, very large sections of the blue collar working class vote going going right back to the nineteen sixties. It's, it's been a steady drift that became a stampede in more recent times um, for, for, for perfectly good reasons in some ways. Um, you know, what, what had been, I mean, what we used to, it, it's always been a coalition, was a coalition, say back in the 60s and the 70s, we would talk about the kind of, um, the, sort of the Hampstead-Hartley-Pool alliance, if you like, I mean, between the sort of professional middle class, um, the liberal professional middle class and, and, and the blue-collar blue Britain. Um, in those days, uh, the, the, the differences were one of emphasis rather than a fundamental interest, I think. So, the, so the, 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 the Hampstead intellectual was perhaps more interested in ending apartheid or gay rights, or, um, whereas the, 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 the blue-collar part of the equation was, more, was interested in the social wage and trade union rights and so on. But these didn't conflict, uh, and indeed, indeed they came together, as perhaps they still come together in one or two narrow areas like public spending. I mean, both groups, public sector professionals and um, working class Britain, arguably have an interest in, in higher public spending. Um, but in almost all other areas, you now actually have fundamental divisions of interest. The, um, you know, if you, if you live in the north of England and you, I mean, the food manufacturing sector, um, it's our biggest manufacturing sector by employment. It employs about 400,000 people, about 120, 130,000 of those people come from Central and Eastern Europe. Just since 2004, it is quite extraordinary. And have you ever heard a word from the Labour Party about that? Now, the vast majority of people um, from, from the British population who work in fish finger factories in Hull or whatever, have no, generally speaking, I mean, one or two people will, but most people have no 
personal animosity against the Poles and Slovakians and others who have come to work in those factories. They probably go out to drink with them. But it doesn't mean to say they think that the arrival of those people in such large numbers has been in their economic interest, um, let alone the broader socialist views of competition for public services and social housing and so on, or indeed the, the very the broadest issue of all, which is, which is cultural change. You know, how quickly places change, more quickly than most people like to live in relatively stable neighbourhoods. And in certain parts of the country, that has become a very difficult thing to do. Now, the Hampstead public sector professional um, thinks that is a marvellous thing and probably benefits that they, uh, you know, have a middle or even upper middle class income. Uh, they have, you know, as the argument goes, you know, they can get cheaper um, cheaper extensions, cheaper nannies, etc., etc. Uh, it, it works in their interests. Uh, and, it, and it's also because they think of themselves as, as open, internationally minded people. They are, you know, they walk down the street and they hear people speaking another language. It makes them feel, it makes them feel good. It doesn't make them feel that they're living in a foreign country. But actually, quite a few of their fellow, fellow citizens do feel that, at least when, when that happens to them all day. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and, and so you've, you've had this divergence of interest, not just of things that people are interested in, which might have been the, the case back in the 60s and the 70s. So you've got, uh, I mean, you have, as Gisela said, you also have these divisions inside the Conservative. The Conservative Party is now, I mean, we are somewhat mirroring the switch, the, the Democrat-Republican switch. The, the Conservative Party now has a larger working class vote than the Labour Party. I'm not sure it's yet got used to being a kind of more overt working class, middle class coalition. Um, I mean, certainly the last election, the, the Tory manifesto was really quite a social democratic document, uh, quite impressive in many ways. But that, it, you know, it clearly hadn't been sold to um, much of the rank and file of the party or even many of the MPs. So they're going through a sort of cultural... Uh, conflict too, I and mean, whether whether the Conservative Party will become more overtly the party of um, of kind of middle and and lower Britain, and that um, and and Labour will 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 be the party of the ethnic minorities, um, as you say, the, the public sector and. Um, sort of guardian reading Britain writ large. Intelligentsia. Yeah, I mean, essentially an education divide um, rather than an income divide so much. I mean, obviously the two overlap a bit, but there are lots of there are lots of well-off people, you know, kind of entrepreneurs, people who build up businesses who didn't go to university and are not part of the, don't, don't share the kind of liberal assumptions about life that you generally acquire at university. And similarly, there are a lot of people who went to university who find they're not getting, you know, who find that they're not particularly affluent. They haven't got the jobs they hope they would. Indeed, a lot of them are then form part of the rank and file of the new Corbyn Labour Party. Um, so, but it's, so it's these, it's these, the ed- education divisions, economic divisions obviously remain relevant too. But education division, education and cultural and value divisions have sort of trumped them in some ways. And with Change Britain, when the election was called, uh, we did a very extensive interviews and, and, and focus groups, uh, equal numbers before the election, after the election, and we sort of put this picture of values. And it was quite interesting. It was quite easy on those values to kind of explain where the coalition came from, which produced the Labour vote uh, and which was continuously squeezing the Tory vote. Where it became fascinating, though, is once you introduced the element of age. 
and for the under 35s it is a very very different picture now they don't believe in uh, the state in, in 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 any way and i thought the classic example was my my youngest son got a letter from the student loan company telling him that unless he told his employer to stop paying contributions uh, he will overpay and uh, he has to do something to which uh, my son said if they have got the system in place and the now to tell me they're about to make a mistake, wouldn't they have been better employed to just put the mistake right? And that kind of showed that for those under 35s, they feel they have to pay for their education. Health doesn't become that important to them. Uh, they don't believe in the contributor principle. You start talking to them about saving for their pensions. Uh, they kind of think this is bizarre, give them all the other commitments. So those big societal changes. So... For a political party, my point is we should have debates about what's, what's going to be our future taxation base. Will we have to tax robots? Because if we want these public services uh, and you've got an eroding taxation base, uh, what is the vision of the future? Now, Blair had a deep insight of society in 97 when we came in that the world of work had a social element and therefore you had the minimum wage, you had working tax credits, you had all those kind of things. Now, it did lead to the working poor because we didn't follow up with other things. But right now, what I see is all the political parties showing to me a fear of the future. They're not looking ahead. Uh, but one of the interesting elements of the, the next 18 months and Brexit, I think if we can get this into a debate on national renewal, try and address some of those underlying fault lines, which were there anyway, but now is the chance that we really have to face up to mm. them. I think this should, could be a very productive next couple of years in terms of new ideas. Mm. I think that's a very interesting point. And there's a sense that we've been sort of sleepwalking, I think, for quite a long time as a as a nation, as, as a country, um, just kind of following a sort of short-termist, uh, quite, quite easy uh, path without having to make any grand decisions. It's almost because someone else is somewhere else has been making them for us, perhaps. Um, but the, you know, one great positive, surely, that m must come out of all this anguish and all this pain and all this sort of, uh, you know, uh, emotional uh, trauma that se we seem to be going through as a country because of Brexit, uh, is that we are forced to to take a long, hard look at ourselves and what we want for the future and how we do that. And it's almost like events have kind of got the 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 conventional political parties on the hop, you know, events have overtaken the the sort of policy planning and the sort of political narratives of both parties. And they're, they're playing catch up now, aren't they? You're absolutely right. And to me, the what epitomized it was probably the headstone of the 2015 election. Uh, whereas in the, 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 the pledge card in 1997, uh, had insights into the future of the country, was containing people's fears as to what the Labour government would do, was a, a, a shorthand five line of what Labour would do when it came in, compared with, we thought that irrespective of what the pledges were, because I can't remember them, I'm not sure whether you can, but we thought if, if we chiseled them in stone, then they give them, and and I think this is this <coughs> procedures. It's the same the debate when people currently say, 
oh, the importance of social media, to which my response is, but you still have to have something worthwhile saying. The starting point has to be, what do I believe in? And then we can have big discussions on how we get that out. And I think you're quite right that that debate is one which we haven't had. And, and I would say the challenge is the global flows of goods, people and, 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 and money, in a sense, in terms of goods, the global institutions, WTO, have adapted to it. Money, I think we still haven't entirely come to terms with 2008 and the financial crisis, but there are some movements in there. But as flows of people go, we are completely failing. And that's why uh, David Goodhart's book, I think, is, is so important, because it shows us that place is important. Politicians have to respect that. And if we don't, these are the consequences. Um, am I right in thinking that um, Germany is, if you like, a, a bit better in this regard? It, it it has a clear sense of what it wants to do. Obviously, it's based its economy on uh, industrial manufacturing and exporting all around the world. It's been, I think, very, very uh, substantially helped by having a far lower exchange rate than it otherwise would have. You know, if you're, if you can sell a, um, uh, you know, a, a Volkswagen Golf uh, for, for, let's say, 25% cheaper or 30% cheaper in China than you otherwise would do because your currency is attached to, to the, you know, what used to be the Greek drachma, um, you know, that really helps if you're a manufacturing uh, country. But does Germany do more kind of central planning and longer term thinking about what it actually wants to do. Is that true? Yes and no. I think in the sort of last 45 years of going backwards and forwards, I, I find that problems have a habit of sort of starting in the, in, in the West and then traveling East. So it just sometimes just takes the Germans a little bit longer to catch up with the problems we're having. Um, in terms of movement of people, the decision of uh, opening the borders uh, has had and continues to have massive consequences. Germany currently doesn't have a government. Uh, in, and uh, the the reasons why we're probably going to end up with a grand coalition again is because all the political parties are terrified of the rise of the Alternative für Deutschland. Uh, which, to begin with, people dismissed as a kind of right-wing party and, and, and admittedly has some pretty unsavoury elements to it. But the people who voted for them went across the, all the age groups and all the socio-economic groups. So, but what they do have is, because of being a federal state and the structures, they have a much greater sense of place. And what they call the Mittelstand companies... Uh, feel that they have a responsibility to the place they're in. So if you go to BMW in Munich, they will still bus in people in enormous numbers. Uh, they feel they have a responsibility to the city, to the environment, in terms of training, to the future. And that's something which I think we've lost. <clears throat> no, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, the whole, to go back to the earlier discussion, rebooting Britain. I mean, that we now have an opportunity, thanks to Brexit, to seriously revisit a lot of these things, um, both in the political system, how we reboot our democracy, and also how we reboot our economy, so that um, the knowledge economy <clears throat> does not just serve the interests of the highly educated. I mean, we have this sort of hourglass labour market, and a lot of people, indeed, if I had to give a single reason for the dissatisfaction expressed in the in the 
Brexit vote and and um, and other expressions of dissatisfaction, I would say it is the declining status of non-graduate employment in this country over the last few decades. Um, people were made prom people were promised both in America and the UK. Interesting. I mean, a lot of this was actually a centre-left thing too. Robert Reich in America back in the early nineties said, "Roll with globalisation, and we will." sort you out. We will retrain you. The work of nations, I think the book was. Um, I was Labour editor of the FT at the time and, and wrote quite a lot about it. And and the promise never materialised. You know, we were going to retrain everybody's IT technicians, or whatever. It just simply didn't happen. Same here, too. I mean, you know, we'd had the great deindustrialization, 70s and the 80s. Uh, large areas of the country um, remain sort of like East Germany. They are our versions of East Germany. And we didn't retrain people as IT technicians. Um, now, Germany did do that better. I think Germany does do um, many of these things better, as Gisela was saying. I mean, it's sort of by accident as much as anything else, partly because of the institutions. It doesn't have a London. That's an enormous advantage in many ways. What, what it, do you mean by that? It doesn't have one city that is eight times the size of any other city and that sucks in a disproportionate quantity of the country's talent. Uh, and indeed spending, public spending, infrastructure spending, and so on. It, it unbalances the country. Um, I mean, there's not very much we can do about that, but we need to worry about it. Um, it, it has no global universities, which actually I think in, in a funny sort of way is a strength. It, it's, it places much more emphasis on, on the middling and the local. You know, middling and local people do not feel sort of um, condescended to or ignored in the way that I think people have some justification for feeling in this country. Um, and as Gisela says, there's a sort of better balance between the, the, the local or the regional and the national. I mean, you, you hear it, it's in the German language itself. You know, if you come from a little town outside Stuttgart, you know, when you go home, you will speak in a Schwabischer dialect in all sorts of words that most other Germans wouldn't understand in a very strong accent. But when you're out and about in the rest of Germany, you speak in Hochdeutsch. I mean, people have this sort of division in the very, but but it's a it's a division that is kind of managed and it's reflected in the, in the way they speak. Um, and, you know, the, the, the apprenticeship system that we, you know, everybody admires, but no one, no one ever seems to be able to replicate. Uh, and, 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 and we can't replicate it exactly because it's embedded in a whole sort of structure of institutions and ways that local companies, that the power of the chambers of commerce and so on in Germany, it's very hard to replicate here. But we need to think about replicating our own version of the German apprenticeship scheme. And, and to its credit, this government has, um, after all, introduced the apprenticeship levy. Um, you know, how long was Labour in power? Why the hell didn't they do something like that? Um, um, and, and now we've got T-levels coming into... I mean, the problem with T-levels is, of course, that it's unlikely that the smart kids, any of the smart kids, will actually do T-levels, so they'll become like B-techs. Uh, but this, you know, we talk constantly about trying to rebalance away from, from the academic, from, and, yet, and yet all the incentives are still there for universities just to put on more and more standard three-year academic graduate courses, producing people with skills, that the country actually doesn't need. Uh, whereas, you know, we don't have, we had 8,000 construction apprentices starting last year. A third of the construction workers in London come from the European Union. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, absolutely. And I think the uh, the last Labour government was, you know, it had such a great opportunity in 1997 to take us into a more structured and, and um, uh, organised system 
more akin to the German style. Um, instead, we've ended up with large amounts of people doing sort of airy-fairy academic qualifications, which actually will never, ever uh, become uh, useful uh, and actually paying a lot of money for the privilege as well, basically wasting three years uh, on a, um, a sort of uh, middling academic uh, education. And at the same time, we have this massive skills shortage and we have what you call, David, a sort of hourglass economy where you have people at the top doing very well, sort of maybe 35%, I guess, of the mm -hmm. of the population doing very well. Thank you very much. You know, it's mm -hmm. all very lovely. And uh, they're all very, uh, to use your phrase, they're all very anywhere people. They're mobile. Well, not necessarily, actually. I mean, that could no. include people in the top 30. I mean, the top 35, 40% of jobs that are that are highly productive often require a serious amount of training, maybe relatively well paid, but not so, you know, I'm in that I would include someone who works on the production line at Nissan, yeah. uh, as well as say an investment banker, when they, they, so that you could have, that could include very different jobs. And then you've got a relatively small number of jobs in the kind of, of middling status. We used to have many more that's, middling status jobs when manufacturing was large. Manufacturing that's exactly the problem now, isn't it? There's, yeah. the, it it mm -hmm. shrinks out mm -hmm. in the middle and then swells out back, as it were, at the bottom and of the labour And our growth market. model is essentially a labour-generating model. Uh, and it is absolutely no coincidence. I don't know why the economists are puzzled by, by low productivity. We have chosen to, particularly in the last 30 years or so, since the the great labour market reforms of the Thatcher era, which were in many ways very progressive. Um, they do make it so much easier to, to create jobs in this country. But that is our growth model, is producing lots of jobs without high levels of training. Um, because labour is relatively cheap to the employer, the income to the worker is topped up by the state since the tax credit system was introduced, which so labour kept the labour machine system going. That is our growth model. Um, and, it, you know, and it has severe limitations. One of the ironies of Brexit may be that you know, if we can think about how we reboot our system, that we may end up moving to a slightly more um, European-style labour market. Um, well, well, we already have quite a high floor, um, wage floor under it with the, with the living wage, that, um, the minimum wage that was then increased by the Conservatives, accepted and, and developed by the Conservatives, which is a good thing. But, but, but creating an economy where there's much more incentive to actually replace labour with capital, um, I mean, that is what produces higher productivity. Um, and that means investing massively more in in the training of um, the average British worker. There's been an extraordinary fall off. I mean, this should have been a much bigger issue um, in, in recent years um, and indeed in the, in the Brexit campaign. But the, um, the, the, the most comprehensive analysis of the amount that employers spend on training in Britain um, done in the last few years suggests that it's fallen by about 20% since in the last 15 years. I mean, essentially coinciding with the, with the arrival of so many people from Eastern Europe. Uh, because they simply, you know, they didn't have an incentive any longer to train people because you could take people already trained off the shelf. Now, it's not just to do with immigration. It's also to do with the expansion of graduates. I mean, you, you have to, at least for certain kinds of functions, you have to train a 21-year-old who's done a three-year three academic degree less than you would have to train a 17 or 18-year-old straight out of school. Um, so that, so they're getting free graduates 
um, from from the state, as it were, um, and they and they're getting anybody they like from Eastern Europe. So of course they haven't trained as much. And one of the great things about Brexit and ending freedom of movement will be that they will the government and employers will for once have an un, unavoidable uh, uh, incentive. To really sort out, particularly the bottom end of the British labour market, because we've only got you know 1.4 million unemployed people, but you know, ethnic minority unemployment, you know, ethnic minority kids in Tottenham unemployment there's 30 percent, 35 percent. I mean, and and employers need 20 percent of children still leave school, essentially innumerate and illiterate, according to the Sheffield report. It's extraordinary. It, um, it, it's almost as if you know, if you were going to design a dysfunctional and highly divisive society. You do exactly what we're doing now, basically. Well, I'm not. Uh, uh, you know, David is right with the distorting effect of, of London, and it's even worse in the sense of the distorting effect of the financial industry, because it takes a lot of skills. You know, like the physicists and the mathematicians. You know, which in in in, in days gone by would have gone into the engineer in engineering industry. They ended up going becoming data analysts in the city. So it it even sucks that out. Now on 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 the positive side, where how can we actually you know garner some benefits from this uh, there was a big battle in labor in the late 90s uh, the david miliband wanted uh, city regions and i think it would have been the right way forward uh, john prescott wanted regional government so we had the referendum uh, but the people didn't want regional government. But at least by 2010, we still had 10 regional government offices. You had data. You kind of had access to outside London, a, a, a central government representation which represented the regions. The Tories then came in and abolished both regional development agencies and those uh, regional government offices. Ignored devolution for quite a bit, and then ended up with you know uh, the mayors, and and it's a start. So uh, becoming terribly parochial, and just looking at the West Midlands, uh, whenever jobs were created, so a company would say they're coming into it. I would ring up my mate at British Rail and say, "What's happening? Commuter figures in New Street." And it, all it meant is that commuting in New Street was going up. It wasn't addressing the problems in Birmingham because you know you need to bring jobs in not just to, to increase commuting. So one of the things which I'm very looking at now is, as you say, the training levy. Uh, not um, the, the reason why when the, the Brits go to Germany and look at apprenticeships and why they always fail is that they think uh, a Rolls-Royce apprenticeship is uh, a universally good thing. It's a good thing for Rolls-Royce because it's, it's a big employer training its workforce. But there's never that kind of lateral exchange. So, you know, the Marks and Spencer apprenticeship has to be accepted by John Lewis's and has to be accepted by Next. Then you have that lateral move. The levy, uh, what companies aren't using in about 18 months' time, there will be surpluses and it's not yet clear what will happen to those surpluses. And I think that's a classic one, which should get, then go to the strategic mayors. It should be part of mm. the city deals. Mm. That if they have a responsibility for skills, I think we need to put by far more work to collect data, not nationwide, but collect very specific regional data, and then have some oversight of how you deal with those mm. asymmetric shortages. And mm. that ha can't happen from Whitehall. I think the elected mayors uh, are mm. a good thing. If, if you talk to the elected mayor of Leicester, 
who was first the council leader, then he was an MP, then he went back to be the elected mayor. And he will tell you uh, that it actually feels very differently. You, you feel you, you've now got a personal mandate, and when something goes wrong in your city, then you, you feel you've got to mm. put it right. Mm. So, well, that's got the very much part of taking back control in a way. I mean, kind of local, localism is yep. a very big part of this story. I think we've seen so many, one of the reasons, one of the motivations for the vote, I think, was the feeling that, that the, you know, the, the equal citizenship that is our birthright, okay, we may have had growing inequality, well, actually declining slightly in recent years, but growing inequality in the last couple of decades, last few decades, but we're all equal citizens. We all have the vote. But increasingly, people saw the vote being meaningless because so many things were taken out of the democratic conflict. Bank of England independence, you know, judicial activism, um, the European Union itself. All of these things that were happening at the sort of technocratic level, the power of the vote remains absolutely central to what it is to be a citizen of a modern democracy. And, you know, the, and the good old leave voters kind of felt that in their, in their, in their bowels, in a way that the mm -hmm. Remain voters... Who understand perhaps more the kind of you know the importance of international agreements and perhaps know somebody who works for the OECD and sort of felt connected to the new world, the kind of new post-national world of international agreements. But but you know the, but believe is the centripetal centre of what it is to be a a national democracy. And I think yeah. know, and finding new forms like mayors or that, that give people a sense of some sort of local accountability. I mean, not everybody wants to be an activist and turn up to meetings, of course, but feeling you've got some lever you can pull every now and then and, and it'll actually, you know, somebody will, somebody will be accountable to you. I think that's part of the story. And I think that's where companies are, are going to be really important. I went recently to JCB uh, and the, the companies in Roster, and if you've never heard of Roster, then join the club. Uh, it's sort of in the East Midlands. But what their, their academy there is training not just their own people but also the supply chain really important i went to see dyson in malmesbury with his first dyson university so you get a degree uh, it's warwick university which is awarding the degree it's four years uh, you get paid you work three days a week uh, and then join but he has no expectation that that is his workforce but they get and 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 i think that's where you know over the next few a few years that ownership of that problem and that's why you know David you're so right about that importance of place we will only resolve that if we acknowledge the importance of place for the political decision making and for the people who live there and don't deride it and to me the success other than leaving the European Union uh, of my test will be that I will not hear another education secretary who will actually think that it's a good thing that you had to leave home to make it in the world. And you will not be abused again by Alastair Campbell, we hope. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's a rather curious thing that uh, it seems to be perfectly all right to attack leavers. Uh, and if it's done what by Alastair, Remain, it's even better. What did Alastair say to you? Well, we had, a, a, before a television uh, appearance, uh, he came in and sort of jokingly, said, well, when are you going to stop fucking up my country? Uh, and I thought I should point out to him that it was m my country as much as his. And then he suggested that, of course, I had another country to go to. Now, if, if you had done this the other way around, I can just see the front page of The Guardian. But... 
W- yeah, I, I think the last time I heard someone say that kind of thing was a sort of National Front skinhead in the in the late seventies. It's a pretty remarkable thing to say, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to thank you both. Uh, it's been uh, a fantastic discussion. Uh, there is so much, I think, to talk about. So many things to discuss and. Um, uh, I don't know if it's the, uh, uh, I, I think it may, it's the beginning uh, or the end of the beginning, maybe. Um, the Brexit vote did not uh, answer a question. It simply uh, asked uh, another much bigger one, perhaps. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure.